Uh, Roxana Robinson is one of the best writers in America. Um, she has written, this is her 10th book, and she moves effortlessly between uh, fiction and nonfiction. Uh, this is fiction, but it blends in nonfiction because she's researched the life of her great-grandfather, who is the Dawson of the title, and um, so much of it is absolutely true, but it's a novel um, for the part that she couldn't research. And he was one of the, not a, not a few Englishmen who came over to fight for the Confederacy during the American Civil War. Um, they thought it was romantic. Uh, Roxana has one of her characters saying, uh, it's like the English baron standing up to the king. It's like the Battle of Runnymede. These Englishmen did not dwell on the problem of slavery, the original sin of our republic. Uh, but, uh, and the South encouraged this romanticism. They, they tried to tell the English, who they very much wanted to come in on our side, uh, that the Confederacy was the, the, were the sons and daughters of the Cavaliers. Um, of course, that wouldn't have made much difference here in New England because we were the all round he heads here. And I learned that one half the graduating class of Harvard, their first graduating class in 1641, sailed across the Atlantic to fight for Cromwell. But that was not the tradition of the Englishmen who came to fight for the Confederacy. Um, Dawson came uh, up against the unrelenting stubbornness. He, he, after the war, he became a newspaper editor. And he came across the stubbornness of Americans who could not bear the thought of uh, black people being equal to white people. Um, and it. Uh, it resonates today as it did then. Um, one of the characters in the book tells Dawson, these people are looking for enemies. It gives them focus. And the period that Roxana has chosen about was a very violent time in America. And she quotes from a Louisiana newspaper on January 9th, 1888, about a local election. And this is a real quote, this is not fiction. As the campaign grew warmer, the pistol was appealed to. Judge Trimble and editor Ramsey met and killed each other over the question of McHenry's reception at Farmersville. The next day, the chief of police of Opelousas and a merchant of that town killed each other over their choice for governor. And on New Year's Day, the reform leader, the Honorable Pat Mealy, was killed in a fray resulting from two factions cheering for their respective candidates. The wounded in these political disturbances have numbered over a dozen, some of whom may die. And we think we live in politically divided times. Roxana.
Thank you, David. Um, thank you all for coming. It's a great honor to read in this beautiful, beautiful place devoted to books and reading. Um, I'm glad that David quoted from that um, that newspaper. It does. It was shocking for me to read that, um, and it's shocking to realize how much violence is still a part of, part of our culture. Um, so I'll tell you a little bit about the book and how I came to write it, and then I'll read a little bit from it. We all have family histories. We all tell stories of our families, and those stories reveal to us who we are, who we think we are, and what our relationship is to the culture. So you may have passed down in your family the story of your great-grandfather who was a moonshiner and was never caught. And he, that meant he was nimble, he was savvy, he was fast, and he was a great entrepreneur. Um, or you may have a story about your great-great-grandmother who came up with a recipe for the best um, egg salad sandwich ever, and it was bought by the Ritz Hotel. So whatever the story is, it reaffirms who your family thinks they are, how they feel about education, or the government, or cooking, or the family, we pass these things down and those stories tell us who we are in the world. So in my family, abolitionist, abolition, abolition was um, the story that we told about ourselves. And my mm, great, 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 I don't remember who, Lyman Beecher was a fiery abolitionist, grandfather of sorts of mine, so fiery, in fact, that he preached here in Boston and his church was burned down in response to whatever it was he said. He was, he was a radical. Um, his son, Henry Ward Beecher, was my great-grandfather, or maybe two greats, um, abolitionist in Brooklyn, and Harry Beecher Stowe is my great-great-great-aunt. So the story that we pass down in our family is that we are abolitionists and we are very proud of this. That part of American history is something we have spoken out about, and we've come down on the side that we think is right. We're opposed to slavery. We're abolitionists. And because of the fact that Harriet Beecher Stowe is, my, is an ancestor of mine, I thought that I would never have to write about slavery. I thought my family had really said the last word, everything we needed to say about this subject, and that anything I could add to it would, would be pointless after Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, but every family has many branches and many parts to it. And of course the Beechers are not the only family that I am part of. There's a southern branch to my family. And um, my, on my father's side, although his earliest ancestors came to Boston in 1700 and were here till 1820, but somebody married um, into a, an Englishman, Francis Warrington Dawson, who came to this country to fight for the Confederacy. Now, the family stories that we tell about Dawson are ones that make us proud, and he was a progressive in a period of intense um, retrograde po politics in a time when slavery was still very much a presence in the South and racism was dominant. Um, but Dawson founded a, a newspaper called the Charleston News and Courier, and it was a famous newspaper, and it was called A Voice of the New South. And Dawson was the editor-in-chief, and so it was his voice that determined what that newspaper said. And um, 
So he, sp he believed in the rule of law. He did not believe in violence. And um, he was a progressive. So the stories that we passed down about Francis Warrington Dawson were that he was also someone we were proud of. He was liberal and a progressive, and he supported the rights of the black freedmen. But I'm a writer, so I write about things that, that confuse me or disturb me or things that I don't understand. And I started thinking about, and I always thought I would write about Henry Ward Beecher, but my mind and my interest veered over towards this curious, enigmatic man who was an Englishman, and as David says, he, he was a journalist um, before the Civil War, during, when it started, and the reports that England got about the Civil War were based on the fact that they were trading partners of the South. The English wanted the cotton for their mills. It was very simple. And so the stories that they told about the southern states, the, the seceding states, were that these were brave little barons standing up to the brutal northern bully. And who could resist that narrative? And Dawson, my great-grandfather, was at loose ends. If you read the book, you'll find out why. But he had nothing sort of going on in his life at that moment. And he decided to join up with this group of Brits um, coming over to America to fight for these brave little barons standing up to the northern bully. Um, he went on his own. And one of the appealing things about Dawson is that he was infinitely um, confident very hardworking, very smart, and he honestly thought he could do anything that he set out to do. And he practically pulled that off. Talked his way onto a naval Confederate ship that didn't take civilians, it didn't take landlubbers. He got himself on it. By the time they landed, he was an officer. He fought for the Confederate Navy until it collapsed. Then he talked his way into the Army. He'd never ridden, ridden a horse. He ended up a captain in the cavalry at the end of the war. He'd been wounded twice. He'd been imprisoned. He'd been traded. Um, and as I say, he was an officer. And he was so enthusiastic about everything that you couldn't help but admiring him. And he, he wrote songs for the Confederacy, and he loved leading the troops, and he, he talks about, you know, the winters in Tennessee and eating green bacon. It was so moldy, and he loved it. He just loved everything he did. And at the end of the war, he stayed in America, and he and a partner founded this newspaper, the Charleston News and Courier. And after the war, he, this became a voice um, of progressives. But um, there is this fundamental problem. How could he have, even if he believed the story about the, the robber baron, I mean the barons standing up to the king, once he got here, wasn't he aware of what the actualities were? Because here were all these enslaved people in the landscape, and he was very much aware of these were all his friends. He'd become friends with all the officers now, so he's part of this community. And how can he, a progressive liberal who doesn't believe in violence and believes in um, the rule of law, how could he have fallen into this community that believed slavery was the way, the right way to, to uh, run a country? So I wanted to find out how this was possible, how this paradox could exist in one person. And the fact that it was my great-grandfather made me doubly interested and a little worried because this is not the story I wanted to think about. Um, because slavery is 
still a part of our country, it's still a part of our culture, and it's not something that we can ignore. So even though when I started writing this book, which was six or seven years ago, it was less present in the culture than it is today, but today, as we know, every day in the paper, there is another incident that raises our awareness of the fact that race is still an issue in America. So I'm going to read you a bit from the book itself, and then I'll tell you a little bit more about it. And then you can ask me anything you want about the book. So as David says, the book is called a novel because I wanted to, um, I couldn't bear as a novelist to give up the two tools that distinguish fiction from nonfiction, and they are dialogue and interior monologue. And those are the two things that a biographer may not touch. And since I wrote the biography of Georgia O'Keeffe, I was very conscious of the fact that you can never begin a paragraph in a biography saying, she must have thought, she must have felt, she and her mother screamed at each other. You don't know, as a biographer, the facts of what they said or what she thought. But as a novelist, you can enter the mind of somebody the way our great hero and forefather Tolstoy does. Tolstoy is really the founder of the modern stream of consciousness novel, and so he goes into everyone's mind in Anna Karenina, including the favorite hunting dog, Laska, who is arguing with her master while he's telling, sending her the wrong way to look for the birds. Um, so Tolstoy lets us... Um, become aware of, of the necessity of entering into somebody else's mind, someone's consciousness, in terms of telling a story. So I couldn't give that up, and I couldn't give up dialogue. Dialogue is the way we express our most profound feelings. It's the way we reveal who we are. And um, the way we talk is very different from the way we write, or the way we think we talk. So I couldn't give up dialogue or interior consciousness, but I was determined as a biographer and a sort of a historian of sorts that, that everything in the book would be true, and everything in the book is true and documented, except for one thing. People said, well, but it's, it's a historical novel. You, you've changed it, right? I said, I have changed nothing, and I've made nothing up except... One, at one point in this book, um, a bird gets into the house. I made that up. I have no evidence that that actually happened, but I created this incident. Uh, but everything else is really true. The letters are absolutely come from the family documents. Um, all the newspaper articles are true. And yet people ask me about this, and I say, but at the, at the end of the book, it says everything in this book is true. And somebody said, I know, but you have your um, unreliable narrators. I thought that was what this was. I said, no, it's me. It's true. So um, it's, it's all true, but it is written as a novel using dialogue and, and interior monologue. Um, and I was fortunate in many ways to have the archival information that I did for this book. Um, because Dawson was the editor-in-chief of this newspaper, and because that newspaper is still extant, and you can, if you subscribe to the Charleston Post and Courier, it gives you access to their historical archives. So I could read at my desk in New York, I could read everything Dawson wrote for 25 years. I could see the paper every morning. I could see the news articles that he thought were important. 
and what he, what he said about them. So his narrative, his, his mind shaped this newspaper, which was the second largest, had the second largest circulation in, this, in the cotton states. So I had that, plus everyone in my family writes copiously. Some of them are published, some of them are not, but all of these archives are at Duke University, including every letter that Dawson wrote to his family in London during the Civil War, all there. So I had extraordinary access. I still wouldn't have had the nerve to write a historical novel that, that used dialogue and interior monologue if it weren't for the fact that this is my family. So that I am, because of the way we tell these stories, because of the we pass down our views of telling the truth or our feeling about education or the country or gardening, all those things are part of your family culture. And so when I read about Sarah and Frank, there were things that were so familiar to me that I could feel confident that when I wrote a scene, I was part of their response to it because I, that response is the same response that I've been taught. And at one point, um, my Dawson's son wrote, um, wrote about his parents and he said that his father, Frank Dawson, was very musical played the piano, sang, and had a wonderful ear. And if he went to a concert or to the opera, he would come home afterwards and he would sit down, if he'd never heard the music before, he could sit down at the piano and play it, which is what my father did. So I had a connection to this family that gave me a confidence that I would not have had in writing about anybody else's family. I'm not gonna write about a novel about your great-grandparents. Just be confident about that. <laughs> you needn't worry. So um, I'm going to start at the very beginning, and then I'll skip a little, but I'll tell you when I do. <clears throat> so and this is March 12th, 1889, Charleston, South Carolina. He wakes as he is falling. He feels himself plunging into space, a great wheeling emptiness below. He's been on the edge of a cliff, grappling with a man trying to shoot him. Dawson grabs him, wrestling for the gun, but he wrenches away, pulling Dawson off balance. The man presses the gun against Dawson's chest. He hears the great enveloping sound of the shot. Then he feels the sickening shift beneath his feet as he loses his grip on the world. As he falls, Dawson grabs the man's shoulder to save himself, but instead pulls the man over with him. They fall together, still grappling, as though holding on to each other will help. Dawson's body is clenched and tight, muscles still focused on what he just had solid ground beneath him, but instead there is this, the long drop into whistling black. Dawson sits up, sweating. He's in the narrow bed in his dressing room. His thrashing has pulled the sheets loose, and his feet are now tangled and trapped. The room is dim and shadowy, the curtains drawn for the night, the patterned wallpaper, the mahogany bureau, the ba brass bedstead are all familiar but irrelevant. He's still in his nightmare, 
heart hammering. He still feels the terror of pitching into space, the body's last clenching try at holding on to life. He still feels the man's coarse sleeve in his grasp, smells his sour rankness. The sound of the gunshot still explodes in his ears. He kicks his feet free and gets up. He goes to the connecting door into their bedroom, where his wife lies submerged in the big mahogany bed, nearly hidden by pillows. She lifts her head and sees his face. What is it? What's wrong? Sarah sits up, the white nightgown crumpled high around her throat. I had a dream, says Dawson. A man had a gun and was going to shoot me. I was trying to stop him. We were on the edge of a cliff. Then he did shoot me and I fell. I can feel it still. The dream possesses him, and some other moment flickers into his mind when he stood somewhere high behind him, emptiness. My poor Frank. Sarah's hair is in its nighttime braid, the loosened strands making a fine, furred halo around her face. That's the opening of the book. Now I go back. This is Sarah Morgan Dawson. She's 19 years old. She grew up in Louisiana. And this is April 30th, 1861, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Sarah Fowler Morgan, 19 years old, woke as it was starting to turn light. The air was cool and damp, and she heard the quick pattering rhythm of rain on the leaves outside. Across the room, in the mirror on the armoire, was the reflection of her high bed, shrouded in netting. At the windows, the tall white curtains shifted slowly in the rainy breeze, belling, collapsing. The shadows, the sound of rain, and the dim, pearly light filled the room with something like sadness. Sarah felt the sadness like a waft of air. She turned over, settled her face into the pillow, blocking out the morning, and slept again. So now, I skip a little. Grief can rise up and overwhelm a family the way a, the way a rogue wave overwhelms a ship. Looming, enormous, curved, green, and shining, it towers overhead, too large to consider or understand. It is suddenly upon you, exploding, erupting, engulfing you within its glassy depths. Sarah woke again later, rain pattering on the leaves. The roads would be mud, the trip called off. She got out of bed. The floorboards were cool against her bare feet, and a shiver rippled up her back. She poured water into the basin and sluiced it onto her face and neck. She unraveled her night braid, her fingers flicking quickly in and out then brushed a thick rope of hair. She twisted it up into a chignon, holding it with one hand while she took hairpins from the crystal dish and drove them in. Something from that early morning sadness stayed with her. After dinner, they all went walking near the state house. I've skipped a little ahead. Sarah and her sister Miriam 
their best friends, and some others, the Bruno girls. Sarah was with a cousin, Henry Walsh. The rain had stopped, but the trees were still wet, and spattering drops cascaded suddenly from the branches. A fine mist rose from the gravel walks. Gibbs looked so handsome, Henry Walsh said, with his hair cut short. It made him look more like Hal, said Henry, said Sarah. Hal's the handsomest in the family. Hal is her brother Henry, who is her favorite brother. And he's just come home from studying in Paris to be a doctor. It's the beginning of the war. He's come home to fight, and he's just been accepted into the family, into the army to be a surgeon. And the family gave him a party to welcome him home. And after the party, he told his family that he was going down to New Orleans to talk to his older brother there about setting up a practice after the war. But this was a lie. That's not why he was going to New Orleans. He was going to New Orleans to fight a duel. Duels were illegal in Baton Rouge. When it started to rain again, Miriam went back with the Bruno girls, but Sarah went home. The house was empty, and she went into the parlor and took up her guitar. She wanted the, to play the song Hal had brought back. It was a melancholy march about a young man setting off to war. Partons pour la Syrie. Hal said, in Paris, everyone was singing it. The words were sentimental, but the melody lifted it into poignancy. As she sang, Sarah's parents appeared in the doorway with Lydia, her sister-in-law. Her mother said she was going upstairs. Lydia said she was going home. Her father stood behind them, his face troubled. When they were gone, Sarah began, began singing again. She could hear Hal's voice in her mind. When she reached the end of the verse, she heard her mother begin to scream. She thought of her father's troubled face. He must be ill. She threw down the guitar and ran after them. Halfway up the stairs, she heard her mother's voice again. This time, it was a low keening, a sound so dark and frightening, Sarah turned and fled downstairs, out the front door. In the street, she heard herself calling for Gibbs, though he was gone to the war. Lydia came running after her, catching her by the arm. Zadie, I'll tell you, she said, but Sarah pulled away. Father, Sarah called and ran back inside. She started up the stairs again, Lydia behind her. Let me tell you, Lydia said, but Sarah wouldn't stop. She ran down the hall and burst into her parents' bedroom. It looked lit by lightning. Her mother lay on her back on the floor. Her father knelt over her, holding her hands. Her mother's face was white. As Sarah came in, her mother looked up. Hal is dead, she cried in a strange, low voice. You loved him, Sarah. Sarah heard herself laugh. No, he's not, she said. Father, tell her he's not. For a moment, her father didn't look up. When he raised his face, it was glistening. It's true, my darling. Our Harry's dead. It was the sheen on his cheek that made her know it. Everything inside her stopped. Her heart, her blood, her brain. 
before that vast green wave rising up and breaking over her so high that she couldn't turn from it. There was nowhere to turn. A family's decline can be slow and imperceptible or sudden and precipitous. It was Hal's death which taught the Morgans that what they had taken for granted always was not theirs. They did not possess it. Fortune, healthy children, a stable life. Whatever you have, you think is yours. You believe you're entitled to it. But you will come to learn that you are entitled to nothing. So that's Sarah's young womanhood. That's the beginning of the war. And now I'm going to read for, from a part of the book that's um, 10 years later, 15 years later. This is July 4th, 1876, and it's a pivotal moment in the South. And this is the end of Reconstruction and the beginning of something called redemption, much less well known. July 4th, 1876, Hamburg, South Carolina. Hamburg was a small town on the Savannah River, just across from Augusta, Georgia. Three bridges connected the two towns, but Hamburg was in South Carolina, in the old Edgefield district. It lay on low, swampy land, and when the river rose, the water flooded into the streets. The town had been founded 30 years earlier as a market center, selling slaves, whiskey, and cotton. Communities like these sprang up after the war. Um, the town had dwindled because of the flooding, and white people moved away. By this time, Hamburg held only about 500 people, mostly Negroes, though also some Jews. The mayor, magistrate, marshal, and police chief were all Negroes. Hamburg celebrated the 4th with a reading of the Declaration of Independence and then a parade. The whole town turned out, standing along the edge of the dusty street. Mothers in long skirts and bright kerchiefs held babies in their arms, little children by their hands. Young women with polished dark faces and white teeth leaned against each other. Small boys dodged among the grown-ups. Men in dark jackets and straw hats stood watching. Sam Cook, the mayor, read the declaration. At the end of each line, people called out, Amen, or Yes, Lord. After the mayor finished, the crowd cheered, and everyone looked up Market Street. Company A of the 9th Regiment of the National Guard all Negro, all in uniform and in formation, all carrying rifles, were marching toward them, heads high, arms swinging. They were singing. A drummer and a fifer on a six-hole cane fife rattled out the song. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. The crowd took it up. They were celebrating two kinds of independence, one from the English king and one from the white master. They didn't all know the verses, but they all knew the chorus. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Captain Doc Adams, chin high, walked be beside his men. 
He was a solid man with a barrel chest and short arms. He looked straight ahead. The crowd began to clap. A woman hoisted up her toddler, his back against her shoulder, his feet on her forearm so he could see. Company A had been founded six years earlier by the governor. It was a state militia. After the war, when the white people resisted the new laws, the state governments established armed militias to enforce them. Because the white people wouldn't serve with black people, the militias became de facto all black. Company A was one of these. Its first commander was Prince Rivers, who is now town magistrate. Six months ago, when Doc Adams took over the company, he expanded it to 84 members, and he started weekly drills on Market Street. Outside Hamburg was a town called Edgefield, which was white, and it was owned and lived in, inhabited by plantation owners. And Edgefield it still exists, Hamburg is gone, but Edgefield had the distinction of being the most violent town in America. Fox Butterfield wrote a book about it. Um, it is unthinkably violent. And if you were a black person living in Hamburg, you were always at risk um, from what the white men from Edgefield were going to do. And they constantly harassed the people from Hamburg. And they didn't like the sight of black people carrying guns. Company A marched in four columns, 20 men in each. The center columns took the carriage ruts. The outer ones marched through the grass, trampling it. A horse and buggy had been standing at the far end of Market Street, near the bridge to Augusta. The two white men sitting in it watched as the declaration was read. The militia marched toward the crowd, their rifle barrels catching the sun. The crowd lined the edge of Market Street. Older ladies fanned themselves. The children were playing, not paying attention. The mothers were talking and laughing. When the troops approached the podium, the horse and buggy began to move, heading down Market Street toward the marchers. The horse was a chestnut, smooth and glossy. He jogged slowly, tossing his head. The driver had touched him with the whip, but held the reins tight, making him nervous. The roof of the buggy shadowed the men inside, so it wasn't until it got close that Doc Adams could see their faces. It was Henry Getson and Thomas Butler from Edgefield. So that is all I will read to you from the book. Um, and you can see, as I was doing the research for this project, I thought I was writing about my family, but the more I learned about my family, what um, Sarah Dawson's position was, she was also a writer, and her, her, di her diary, which is called A Confederate Girl's Diary, was published and is, is well known in that field. Her position and Dawson's position as white people who were educated and principled but had become part of a current that we can no longer imagine ourselves supporting, I wanted to find out how you could be both principled and in support of this institution. And it was increasingly troubling for me to investigate these questions. And as I read more and more 
and I only, in my research, I, I almost entirely read first-person narratives, so don't ask me if I read a history of the Civil War. I haven't. I wanted to read, it took me five years to do it, but, but I only wanted to know what it was like for somebody to be there at the time, to feel what it was like to be there, to, to talk to these people, to watch it happen. Um, and it's an incredibly troubling period, and for those of us who have ancestors who were part of that culture, many of us in this country do, even those of us in the North, um, there were lots of connections to slavery up here. Uh, it becomes something that it, it seemed to me necessary to understand. I had to figure out how I could still be feel like a part of my family and acknowledge the fact that they were involved in supporting an institution I couldn't conceive of supporting. One of the things that I learned about this period and this institution was the part that religion played in it. And slavery, of course, is founded on economics. It, it's much easier and it's cheaper to have labor that you don't have to pay. That's, that's sort of the ground, that's the foundation of slavery. You don't have to pay your workers. But um, the secondary part of um, slavery, the, the secondary uh, consequence of it is violence. Um, violence is necessary to slavery. You can't talk someone into being a slave. It requires violence visited on the body, which means that violence pervaded the southern states, the slave states, in a way that it didn't pervade the northern states. And in 1878, there was a survey done, and in Vermont, Massachusetts, and New Hampshire, each state reported one murder. The same year, South Carolina, 128. So violence was simply a way to solve, to resolve differences in the South. People slit, slit each other's throats, they ambushed each other, they shot each other, they stabbed each other. You heard that, that um, government campaign, that, that election campaign, which just people shot each other every day for a week. Um, so violence be, is a part of the legacy. The two, the twin legacies of slavery in this country are violence and racism. And with each month that I continue to do research in this book, the more I became aware that they are still very much a part of our country. But one of the things, um, to go back to religion, became clear to me, um, and it was that, so there is this economic foundation, the need for slavery is that you don't want to pay your workers, but that became um, part of our culture through a re the religious approach to it, and there were many, many ministers throughout the South in the 18th and 19th century, and one historian said to me, remember, the South was a theocracy in the 19th century. Um, ministers who spoke about slavery as though it were a necessary institution said that this was God's will. God had created two unequal races. Slavery is in, existed in the biblical period. Jesus never opposed it. And it's God's will that these races are unequal. And it's the, it's the, it's the responsibility of the white race to take care of this race. So if you, we're part of this culture. Everyone went to church. You went every week. You heard the ministers saying, God's will, it's God's will. Um, then if you were going to oppose it, you were blaspheming. You were opposing God's will in the scripture. So there was a lot of cultural pressure on people to accept this and to believe the religious community that was saying, if you were a good Christian, 
it's not that you oppose slavery, but you will be a good steward of the people in your charge. So that was a way for people to um, allow themselves to be a part of this culture. And there were very few abolitionists who they could turn to and say, this doesn't feel right to me. There was m many of them just said, I'm going to be the best steward I can. I'm going to be the best Christian in this situation, but I'm not going to challenge it. So that is one reason there were so many um, people in the South who were part of this culture that, that they felt God was on, God had, had willed it. Um, it's hard for us to understand that feeling now because we have a religiously diverse society and you, we feel that we can say anything we want and stand up for our beliefs. But at that time, it, religiously, it was much more sort of oppressive and people felt that they had to be, they had to believe that, what their ministers told them. So um, that was kind of chilling to me to realize that, that uh, a part of our society, which I had always thought of as being progressive and, and um, pushing for Christian values, was actually on the other side of this issue. But it made me understand better how we could have ancestors of whom we felt proud who were still part of this, because you have to figure out how you're going to resolve this question. So um, those were the questions I asked, and these were some of the answers I got. Um, Dawson himself believed in the rule of law. He came out with very supportive um, editorials at times, supporting black freedmen who were demanding their rights. But at the same time, he wasn't in favor of blacks taking over the legislature, which is what happened in South Carolina after the Civil War. So um, he was someone, I'm still proud of him, but I no longer think he was, a, you know, he's not perfect. Um, he's part of that very complicated period in our history. So um, the way the book finally came together was not just a story about my family, but I realized I was telling myself the story of my country. And that is, it, it expanded into something larger than, than simply an exploration of my family. So that's all I have to say about it, and you're welcome to ask me any questions. Thank you.